Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, I'm Margaret Talbot. The book I'm going to read to you from today is called The Entertainer, Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. And it's um, a family history that um, is also a larger history of the rise of entertainment in the 20th century. And um, the Lyle referred to in the passage I'm going to read you is Lyle Talbot, my father, um, a veteran actor of the 20th century. Though it was true that Lyle virtually never turned down a job, he might, if he hadn't had a growing family to support, have turned down the ones he took next, working for a director named Ed Wood. Lyle knew Eddie Wood as a peppy young man who had worked as a gopher on a movie he had made a couple of years earlier at Universal. He was this young, eager beaver type, a very personable, very nice, very sweet guy, my father recalled. He'd come to me, he used the same speech with the various actors that he afterwards used when he made pictures, and his pitch was, you know, Lyle, you're my favorite actor. He was sincere about it. He meant it when he said it. He'd say, someday I'm going to make movies, and when I do, I want you to be in them. Well, two or three years later, I got a call from this Eddie Wood. I'd forgotten who he was, but he told me he had this film he was making, and he had a great part for me. He said, I don't have much money, Lyle, and I know you get a pretty big salary, but I'll give you just as much as I can. It amounted to $300 a day. He said, so you know I'll pay you. I'll pay you every day. The movie was Glen or Glenda, and like all Woods movies, it was so very bad in so many and such bizarre ways that it would eventually transcend, if that's the right word, the utter shoddiness of its production and become a cult classic. Actually, Woods' work was first rescued from oblivion when the writers Harry and Michael Medved anointed Plan 9 from Outer Space, the worst film of all time. That was in 1978, two years after Wood died of a heart attack at age 54, depressed and in desperate financial straits after years of eking out a living writing pulp and porn. But after a while, the Internet started showing its capacity to draw together aficionados of the obscure. It rustled up all the arch and ironic film buffs, all the knowing, winking connoisseurs of Betty Page bondage flicks and the lesser-known films of Val Luden, and along the way, even some with a secret, sincere fondness for Ed Wood. In 1994, the director Tim Burden made his biopic about Wood, with Johnny Depp playing him as a sincere, if absurdly buoyant, film lover, and that image stuck. After that, Ed Wood might still be billed as the worst filmmaker in the world, but he elicited a certain befuddled affection, too. Yes, he had made atrocious movies, but he didn't seem to know it. He loved his films, and that earnest belief in his product seemed like such a delirious act of will that it was almost like art itself. I feel the fans must be responding to the love and dedication Eddie had for the business, because even at his most absurd, Ed Wood believed so much in what he was doing, my father told an interviewer in the 1990s, after Wood had been rediscovered, and he worshipped actors like Bella Lugosi. Wood seemed genuinely hurt when Lyle referred to the flying saucers and Plan 9 from outer space as garbage can lids. They were not, he indignantly assured Lyle. They were hubcaps. Then, too, Wood assembled a stock company of players for his movies who were themselves so odd that they constituted at once a realistic rendering of the underside of Hollywood and a sort of living avant-garde performance piece. There was Bela Lugosi, the heavy-accented Hungarian-born actor who'd played Dracula in the 1930s but had since fallen on hard times. Lugosi had successfully fought an addiction to painkillers and was now hoping to make a comeback under Wood's auspices. 
There was the 400-pound, bald-pated Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson. And there was the ornately muscled bodybuilder Steve Reeves, who would go on to become the highest-paid actor in Europe, starring in sword and sandal movies in which he never spoke because they were dubbed in Italian. Wood's girlfriend, the wide-eyed, strangely innocent Dolores Fuller, who went on to some success as a songwriter for Elvis Presley movies, was his leading lady. And for an ahead-of-its-time touch of goth sex, there was Mela Nurmi, a Finnish-born pinup model who'd invented a persona for herself as the hot and cold glamour ghoul Vampira, a TV host who introduced horror movies. She had a full-throated scream, a scarily tiny waist she showed off in a long black gown, and an acerbic sense of humor married to a disarmingly large ego. The ensemble also embraced Bunny Breckenridge, an openly gay gadabout and drag queen from a wealthy and prominent family who played the role of the alien leader in Plan 9 from Outer Space, wearing abundant, incongruous eye makeup. Finally, there was the amazing Chriswell, an amazingly unreliable mystic who made regular TV appearances where he intoned his trademark line, We're all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. One of Chriswell's predictions was that Denver, Colorado, would be destroyed by a strange and terrible pressure from outer space that would cause all solids to turn into a jelly-like mass. He also predicted an outbreak of cannibalism in Pittsburgh, of all places, for November 1980. Chriswell did marginally better when it came to future fashions. He predicted that body decoration would become universal, though in Chriswell's version women would decorate their breasts with startling colors while men would decorate their genitals. Still, if tattoos count, he was on to something. He said nose rings would come into fashion in 1966 for both men and women, and hey, by about 1996, they did. You had to be pretty seriously weird to register as weird with my father. He'd grown up around carny people, acted with and been directed by every kind of personality you can think of, and basically lived his life in the company of exhibitionists. If you were a nice person, big bonus points if you listened to his stories, then your eccentricities were safe with him. Chriswell was one of the few fellow performers I have ever heard him describe as a, a very strange person. Hell, he didn't even describe Ed Wood that way. Chriswell lived in the Highland Towers at the same time that Lyle and the family did, and when they ran into him in the elevator, he'd speak to them in the same stentorian tones in which he'd predicted the future enslavement of men by women, not at all a bad thing in his view, and fix them with that nearly translucent blue gaze, were those contacts, from beneath that frothy platinum coiffure. Either the guy never broke character, or he truly believed in his psychic powers. Both explanations puzzled my father, a performer who was almost never in character when he didn't have to be, that is, when he wasn't actually working, and who'd known too many charlatans in his day to set much store by psychic powers. In the Ed Wood Company, Lyle was the straight arrow. Sure, he might have been a heavy drinker, down on his luck, and married to a woman 26 years his junior, but in Wood World, he was reliable, presentable, a regular Boy Scout. Wood cast him twice as a police inspector and once as a general in charge of repelling an alien invasion. I don't think I'm bragging when I say that he brought a note of professionalism and a faint hint of rationality to the proceedings, accomplishments that would inevitably be undone a moment later when, say, a loud and inexplicable burst of flamenco music interjected itself on the soundtrack. Plan 9 and Jailbait, two of the three movies my father made with Wood, are really unwatchable for me. When I saw them once or twice with friends who were cracking up over them, I just felt sad and queasy and embarrassed for my dad. They reminded me of the cheap, off-brand day-glow candy you'd sometimes get in those claw-grabber machines at an arcade. Candy was so good. How could anybody make it so wretched? When I finally made myself watch Glen or Glenda, though, I found it kind of touching. Of course, it was still awful, botched and awkward and surreal in a style you could be pretty sure was not intentional. But it was also, in its peculiar fashion, kind of a brave and earnest plea for understanding and empathizing with people who didn't conform to their assigned gender. 
Wood had been hired to make an exploitation movie based on the story of Christine Jorgensen, whose sex reassignment surgery had been generating headlines in late 1952 and early 1953. When Jorgensen showed no interest in cooperating, he switched gears, producing a movie centered on a man who likes, or as Glenn or Glenda puts it, desperately wishes, to dress in women's clothes. The quasi-documentary-style narration written by Wood is at once completely ridiculous and emotionally truthful. Give this man satin undies, a dress, a sweater, and a skirt, or even the lounging outfit he has on, and he's the happiest individual in the world. He can work better, think better, he can play better, and he can be a credit to his community and his government, because he is happy. These things are his comfort. Glenn or Glenda was Wood's own story. He was a devoted cross-dresser who claimed that he had fought as a Marine at Guadalcanal, wearing red satin panties and a bra beneath his fatigues. Supposedly his mother dressed him as a girl when he was little, and he harbored lifelong obsessive memories of how soft those clothes were and how good they felt to him. Although he was sexually attracted to women, he had girlfriends like Fuller who were very into him, and he was married twice, he was also really, really attracted to their clothes, especially their Angora sweaters. On the set of Wood's movies, Lyle's a jobs-a-job attitude got him through, abetted by a certain amusement at Eddie's seemingly guileless chutzpah. Lyle had acted in shabby independent productions before, so he was used to directors who stole shots, filming on the street without permits. Sometimes a director would see a good shot, and even if it had nothing to do with the movie he was making, he'd grab it, figuring the studios could use it somehow. But Eddie took stealing shots to a whole new level. He never got permits to film anywhere. He couldn't afford them, so his camera crew was always prepared to pack up and flee at a moment's notice. We were shooting at a motel on the Sunset Strip, my father recalled, and we hadn't gotten an okay to do this. We were shooting around the pool when the manager came out and said, What the hell's going on here? You better get out. So everyone, the cameramen who'd worked for him before and a couple of the electricians, they'd rush to get the hell out of there and go somewhere else. On Plan 9, our studio, what a name to call it, was down an alley off of Santa Monica Boulevard, and it was behind a four-story hotel that mostly housed prostitutes. It was this wooden shack, maybe it had been a garage or something, it certainly wasn't soundproofed, and the lights, the lights were on little music stands, and they were literally tin cans with a bulb in them. Wood was true to his word, though, when it came to paying Lyle every day. The shoots usually lasted only about a week. I always got a large stack of singles, maybe some fives in there, and they were all sort of wrinkled as if he'd gathered them in small amounts and stuffed them into his pockets. He obviously collected them somehow. Lyle didn't even want to think about the circumstances from different people. Lyle found it sad, but also he couldn't help it. Funny. And that was before he even knew that one way Wood had raised money for Plan 9 was by getting some elders from a local Baptist church to chip in, promising that he'd take the money he'd made from the sure-to-be-a-hit horror sci-fi flick to make an epic series of movies for the church about the Twelve Apostles. Before they got the money, Wood and several others from his inner circle, including the big man, Tor Johnson, had to agree to be baptized. No record exists of what kind of undergarments Wood was wearing for his immersion. Then one evening, after the premiere of one of the Wood movies, Lyle was tasked with driving him home. Wood was drunk and couldn't or wouldn't tell Lyle where he lived, so Lyle drove to his own place, parked the car, and left Wood there to sleep it off. At about two in the morning, Wood knocked at the door, and Lyle let him in. My mother insisted that he stay the night rather than calling a cab and offered him the main bedroom. She and Lyle would go to sleep in the kids' room. The next morning, Paul and Lyle were eating breakfast with the little boys when Wood emerged, wearing a filmy black nightgown and a bra of Paula's that had been hanging in the bathroom. Paula, who had never met Wood before that night, was momentarily speechless. Lyle, who apparently thought Wood had only been acting in Glen or Glenda and who was still a little vague on the whole cross-dressing thing, was furious and ordered Wood out of his wife's nighty and out of the apartment. That morning, it must have seemed to him that the seediness of Wood's world was encroaching, seeping into the cracks of a home life that must have felt increasingly precious and fragile to Lyle. He never saw Ed Wood again.
To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.